Let's continue to think of our great God by looking at His Word in Psalm 19. Psalm 19, as we continue our mini-series through Psalm. Let me read for us. To the choir master, a psalm of David. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandments of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. I don't know what you were doing when you were 22 years old, but I wish I was doing what this guy was doing. As a preacher, naturally, Ever since 17, I would have longed to have introduced a message like this guy did. The, the date is January 7th, 1855. It's uh, New Park Street Chapel, Southwark, England. This is how this young man opens his message, by the way, without notes. It has been said by someone that the proper study of mankind is man. I will not oppose the idea, but I believe it is equally true that the proper study of God's elect is God. The proper study of a Christian is the Godhead. The highest science, the loftiest speculation, the mightiest philosophy which can ever engage the attention of a child of God is the name, the nature, the person, the work, the doings, and the existence of the great God whom he calls his Father. There is something exceedingly improving to the mind in a contemplation of the divinity. It is a subject so vast that all our thoughts are lost in its immensity, so deep that our pride is drowned in its infinity. Other subjects we can compass and grapple with, and then we feel a kind of self-content and go our way with the thought, behold, I am wise. But when we come to this master science, finding that our plumb line cannot sound its depths and that our eagle eye cannot see its height, we turn away with the thought that vain man would be wise, but he is like a wild ass's colt. And with solemn explanation, say, I am but of yesterday and know nothing. 
No subject of contemplation will tend more to humble the mind, enlarge the intellect, console the heart than thoughts of God. Of course, this is none other than our beloved C.H. Spurgeon. And you can just hear his passion for the knowledge of God that he wanted to portray to his people. He just acted as if it was the most important thing that you could ever talk about. And this was reflected in every message that he would preach. And I get it, as we listen to that, some of us could be thinking here today, well, yes, the knowledge of God was that important, and it was that high, and it was that lofty, and it was that valuable for then, but that was Victorian-era England. It's the 1800s, it's the Industrial Revolution, people go to the factory, they go back home, they don't have TV, they don't have internet, they don't have social media, they don't have anything better to do. So, of course, they love to contemplate lofty speculations of God. But it's a different world today. The finer points of theology or, or even the idea of, of studying God properly uh, for some people seems rather impractical and irrelevant. You hear things like, do you not know the real world issues that are going on today? You want to drone on about these certain aspects of theology when I've got real problems? Other people dismiss the knowledge of God as something that's boring. It's so abstract, it's so ethereal, so intellectual, it's so theoretical. And yet knowing about God is vital for, for life. I love the way that um, J.I. Packer explains this in his classic book on this subject. I'll modernize his illustration, but he tells the story about, uh, or he asks the reader to imagine how cruel it would be to take uh, an Amazonian tribesman from his native habitat and to fly him to New York City and drop him off in the middle of Times Square with no knowledge of the language, no knowledge of the laws, it would be a most cruel trick. This is a different world. He needs to know how to operate within it. And so also are we trying to live in this world without knowledge of God. It is His world. Things work differently than we could ever imagine. We come from our native jungle settings thinking that we've got it figured out and we know the best ways that we should be doing life and family and work and money. And yet God's world works differently. And, and we feel it. We know that something's off. And, and in His kindness... He has come alongside us in His world, and He has made Himself known, and He has explained to us like how this thing works in light of His sovereign control. He has revealed Himself, and indeed, it is true. It's something true in the mind, like true or false, it's true. And indeed, it is right, like morally, it's, it's what He says is the right thing. But I, I want to take it a step further. When God discloses Himself and His world, it's not only true, it's not only right, but it's also beautiful. The knowledge of God isn't just the right thing to think and the right thing to do, but it's the right way to feel. It informs the heart. And, and you see this clearly in, in the book of Psalms, which... It's this collection of, of poems and songs written to God. And in this one, we see particularly a psalm written in praise of God's self-disclosure, His making Himself known. And it's not just true, and it's not just right. There's truth here, there's morality here. But it's so beautiful. The psalm, if you will, like entices us to know God through two different sources. The first will be in verses 1 through 7, and that is the knowledge of God through what I'll call the skies. The skies. The second, beginning 
um, excuse me, 1 through 6, and then the second beginning in verses 7 through 14 is the Scriptures, God's knowledge through the Scriptures. And I want you to to catch it here. C.S. Lewis wrote of Psalm 19, and if you don't know Lewis's background, people think, oh, Chronicles of Narnia. Uh, Lewis was a literature uh, professor at Cambridge who taught uh, medieval literature. I mean, he knew a ton about the way books work, and this is what he said of Psalm 19. I take this to be the greatest poem in the Psalter and one of the greatest lyrics in the world. You'll see it. You'll see it as we go down because you've got this focus on the skies in verses 1 through 6, and I I want you to note that the name God is only mentioned one time, right at the very beginning. And the the Hebrew word behind that is El, short for Elohim. It's the, the name that you typically use to focus on God as the powerful creator. But then notice how in the, the second stanza of this, uh, this poem, verses 7 through 14, you keep seeing in your version of the Bible, Lord in all caps, which is the Hebrew word Yahweh. His covenant name, his special name for relationship with his people. So when he focuses on the skies, he focuses on God's power and his, that, that aspect of his personality. When he focuses on the scriptures, he focuses on God's interpersonal relationship. I mean, like this is so symmetrical. It's so beautiful. The imagery here is stunning, but it all focuses on the beauty of knowing God. Let's look at the first source of this knowledge of God in the skies. Verses 1 through 6, he says it right out, the heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. Here's where we know what he's talking about right from the very beginning. The heavens clearly being that which we think of as the night sky. And he says that they declare the glory of God. We use that word glory so often, we rarely know what it means. The Hebrew word underlying it deals with heaviness or weight. And you're like, well, the weight of God, the heavens declare the weight of God. Well, you need to think of something. In a, in a culture where money is measured uh, in pounds, if you will, how much gold do you have, how much silver do you have, how much livestock do you have, uh, an important man, a weighty man, uh, was somebody who was glorious. His, his, his weight was seen in how much money he had, how much stuff he had. It, it was another word for his significance. When we're talking about the glory of God, you want to know what his significance is like. He's actually put it in the heavens, the psalmist says, and then he adds that poetically parallel line, the sky above proclaims his handiwork. I love that. It proclaims his handiwork. It, it, like it's, it's when you look on, on the painting and for the signature, like you know who did it based on, on where you see that signature. You look on the bottom of a little figurine and you see where it was made. And we, we see stuff like, no offense, where you're from. This is just some stereotypes that we typically think. We see made in China, we're like, Ugh. Or you see uh, made in Switzerland, we're like, oh. I mean, there's just something about the, like quality that's conveyed by certain makers. If you were to take the skies and turn them upside down, you're like, oh God, wow. This is what it points to. His majesty is seen in in nature. And and he goes specifically on to say that day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. This is fascinating. This testimony about God and His greatness and His power and His glory and His majesty isn't occasional, but all the time. I mean, it's more faithful than Waffle House. 24-7, 365, this thing's open. Day to day, night to night. It is constantly communicating the splendor and the majesty of God. You go look at the Naples sunset, you see God made that. You go over to Miami and you see the sunrise, God made that. You see the stars at night, God made that. And guess what? That show's on 24-7. David is stunned that this is always revealing knowledge. It's always communicating. It's always speaking. But notice verse 3. It's interesting. It says, there is no speech, 
nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Immediately, uh, admittedly, excuse me, this is rather confusing, but all David is saying here is, the skies speak without ever talking. No audible voice. Nobody's getting a recording of this. But they're always communicating without words. But it's saying something to you. It's saying that, that God made this, the creator God. I love the way that um, Joseph Addison put it in his uh, poem, Turned Him, The Spacious Firmament on High. Listen to these, these lines that point to the skies and the stars always speaking. He says, What though in solemn silence all move round this dark terrestrial ball? What though no real voice nor sound amidst their radiant orbs be found? In reason's ear they all rejoice and utter forth a glorious voice, forever singing as they shine, the hand that made us is divine. Always speaking, always communicating His beauty, His glory, His splendor. It is perpetual. It is international. And look at verse 4. It is universal. It says, Their voice goes out through all the earth. And their words to the end of the world. There's no limit to this. Everyone, everywhere can see and take in this testimony. Everyone knows that that something significant has happened and it has been created. In fact, I love that uh, David here isn't arguing for God's existence, he's just celebrating it. We have this like modern tendency, especially as Christians, to feel like we have to debate people over the existence of God. There is no debate. People know that God created it. Romans 1 says, though, that they suppress this knowledge. That they, like, they tamp it down. They beat it down. It's not something that they don't know that you have to convince them of. It's something that they do know, and you just have to point to the obvious. No one assumes that There is a creation without a creator. It's illogical. And so, I love how David here is saying, like, everyone knows this. Their voice goes throughout all the earth. Their their words to the end of the world. There's this universal knowledge. And it's funny that even those who deny the existence of God will speak of, quote-unquote, mother nature like we would speak of God. You ever watch those documentaries? They blow me away these days. Where do they get all these HD cameras? (laughs) You know what I'm talking about. And those people, they speak with such silent reverence and awe over the ant and what it does and over the stars and how they shine and over the sea turtles and how they do their thing because they know that something did it. Just because you call it Mother Nature doesn't mean that it's still a cosmic accident. David knows that this has made its way through the world. But what's interesting here is, is that he sets up this, this beautiful picture of the skies, whether it be the night sky or the day sky. And he's going to say that there's something even more, more brilliant, more outstanding than even the sky. Because as you get to the end of of verse 4, he says this, In them, the skies, he has set a tent for the sun. Right now he's going to switch it up. As cool as the skies are and all the stars and all those beautiful sunsets, uh, what he's going to say is that that's just the tent. There's a, there's a central character in this first verse of the poem, and it's the sun. 
He says, in them, this, it's just where the sun lives, and now watch what the sun does. The, the sun, verse 5, comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and a strong man runs its course with joy. You know what the sun is, is doing every day? It comes out radiantly, beautifully, joyfully. He mentions here, in the Hebrew, there's actually two different words that refer to the um, ancient Near Eastern wedding. It's a wedding metaphor. Some uh, scholars will say, oh, this is when the bridegroom would like leave his house and go and get his bride. He's happy on his wedding day. Some people would say, no, this is actually when the bridegroom would come out of the honeymoon chamber, if you will, rejoicing and having consummated the marriage. The picture is pretty easy for us to follow when we modernize it and just think of a groom on his wedding day showing up. He's a happy guy. There's no sullenness there. Like, whether he's walking through the church doors or whether he's leaving the honeymoon suite, it is victorious, it is radiant, it is joyful, it is good. And guess what? The sun never has a bad day. It's just always happily doing its thing. It comes out like a bridegroom every time. It's just, it's always shining. It's always doing its thing. And then he adds this, it's like a strong man and it runs its course with joy. The underlying word here is beautiful because it's like that of a champion. Now, I am not, uh, friends, a runner by any stretch of the imagination. When I run, it looks like I'm dying. But you know when runners run, it's like they're in their groove, like they're doing their thing. I see some of these guys running at like 2 o'clock in the afternoon. I'm like, what are you doing? But you know the ones I'm talking about. Like they're so shiny that it's like, you know, you need sunglasses on. I mean, they're just like sweating it out, and they're like chiseled and carved, and they're like making their way down the street. And you're like, wow, that guy's strong. What he's saying here is that the sun... It shows up chiseled and strong every day. It just does its thing. It's like a strong man in a race. It's just always steadily progressing in its course. It doesn't get behind. It doesn't bend over and breathe. I mean, it is always on point. And guess what it always does? It always finishes its course. There's no tortoise and hare analogy here. It is just straight up. Look at the verse. It says, it comes out like a strong man. It runs its course with joy. In verse 6, it says, Its rising is from the end of the heavens and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. It hits the starting block every morning at the right time. It makes it to the finish line every day at the right time. And it does its thing. Everything that needs heat gets it. Nothing is hidden from its heat. If I was a smart Alec 8th grader, I would say, well, what about the polar ice caps? Well, the whole world would be a block of ice if the sun wasn't doing its thing. It's even doing what it needs to do with the ice to keep it in check. There is nothing on this planet that isn't influenced by the sun. And guess what? That's just one little thing that God created. Notice here, if people have tried to say, like the, the super smart scholar people that don't love Jesus... They've tried to say, oh, well, they just took this from like ancient Near Eastern Babylonian literature that would worship the sun. There is no worship of the sun here. It is worshiping the one who made the sun. It says it is his handiwork. It's saying that as cool as this is, it's just something that he made. In fact, he didn't even fool around with it. Like he just spoke it. It's amazing. And it all points back to God. Friends, do you see how this is so helpful for us, so encouraging? Because it lets us know that there's someone good and beautiful and strong in control of this world and everything therein. Speaking of uh, J.I. Packer. In his book, Knowing God, he says this, Once you become aware that the main business that you are here for is to know God, most of life's problems fall into place of their own accord. 
Most people in their denial that God is creator and in control and he's put this world together in a beautiful way, like when you say, no, he didn't do that, no, he didn't do that, you end up suffering uh, from these uh, wasting diseases. One is what Albert Camus, the Nobel Prize winning philosopher, called absurdism. When you don't think that God is at the helm of things and they created this beautiful world, you suffer from absurdism, which is basically life is a bad joke. Different philosophers have tried to put this in different ways, but they just think, what a wasted world. What a terrible world. I can't believe that, you know, this is just all an illusion. Joy is an illusion. Happiness is an illusion. Love is an illusion. This is just all pointless. It's all meaningless. Some people call it nihilism, where it's like, who cares? Or you suffer from a second malady if you deny that God is the one who is overseeing this creation. One called Marie Antoinette's fever. Now, you have to be pretty historically in tune to understand what Marie Antoinette's fever is. Marie Antoinette was the one who was uh, beheaded in the French Revolution because she lived such a posh lifestyle. You ever hear the kids say bougie? (laughs) That comes from the bourgeoisie. You know, like the, the fancy people, the, the, like the upper class. She was, she was the one who was like living it up, had everything going on, and she complained of fever while other people were like suffering to their death in the streets of France. And what was her fever, her malady? It was simply, she said it this way, nothing tastes. <laughs> she literally complained to the doctor, nothing tastes. I just... People are starving, and she's whining about not tasting stuff enough, which is funny because it's not not the world we live in. We are surrounded by more conveniences and comforts than we've ever had in our entire life, and yet anxiety rates are higher than they've ever been. Everybody's like, nothing tastes. The sex isn't doing it. The money isn't doing it. The accomplishments aren't doing it. I just... And we try after thing, after thing, after thing, after thing, because we're trying to create meaning and existence, all the while acknowledging, uh, not acknowledging the one who has given us meaning and existence. For David, he's a happy man. He is so happy just to be part of God's created world. He is loving this thing. It is beautiful to him. It is good. There is a great and glorious God overseeing a big and beautiful world. What, how this helps us is that it reminds us that there is design and there is purpose. God signed his name to this thing. And yes, there is rebellion against him. And yes, our, as one missionary heard, I heard speak this week, he was trying to explain to um, his missionary context in Papua New Guinea like what messed up the world, and he, he told uh, these tribe, tribes people that it was Adamness. That was the word they coined, Adamness. <laughs> they were descendants of this guy who messed it up, and like a like a hereditary disease. We all got this Adam thing. The Bible will acknowledge our Adamness messed it up. And yet we still see something good and beautiful. It's not all shot. We know from just generally thinking that, that God, this good God, this, this beautiful God, we should do something to fix it. Now, here's the deal. We stop here at the poem because he doesn't say anything about how it gets fixed. All he says is there's a big, beautiful world. God made it. You see it in the skies. You see it in the sun. Isn't that amazing? Like, how great is God to create something like that? How great is God? That's your first source. It's so easy. You want to know God? You want to think, no, I really want to know God. I don't want it just to be intellectual. I don't, I don't just want it to be a to-do list. Well, uh, homework assignment, sunset, Naples, tonight, 8 o'clock. Go and ask, what kind of God? I've said it before. I'll say it again. Those people standing on that Naples beach have never seen anything like it. They clap every time. Why do they do it? They're not clapping for the cosmic accident. They know inherently that somebody did something good. Enjoy. Enjoy the knowledge of God. That's not dry. That's not boring. I'm not walking out of here today thinking, oh my goodness, I have to know a God like that. I get to. There's a second source of the knowledge of God 
here, and that is the Scriptures, so the skies and the Scriptures. Now, I need to give you a heads up, because as you work your way through uh, 7 through 11, there's a lot of like repetition going on. There's three things that are going to be repeated, uh, a subject, and it's going to be all about the Bible, what we call the Bible, what they call the Torah. And he's going to use all these different words to describe the Bible. And then he's going to use some verbs, and he's going to describe all these different things that the Bible does. And then he's going to describe some outcomes, all the different things that it accomplishes in the life of the one who reads it. Now, here's what we would be tempted to do at this point. You, you would be uh, wanting me to give you precise dictionary definitions, for example, the difference between the law and the testimony and the precepts and the commandment and blah, blah, blah. Um, but that's not how Hebrew parallelism works. Basically, in the English translation, you're going to sense the nuance of difference. You'll see a different part about the Bible. Uh, but the, the point is to catch it all together. You, you get it in, in various pieces. Uh, you're going to see things that sound similar, but different shades of meaning. So what I'm going to attempt to do here is just let the poetry do its work. I want to do minimal explanation. I'd rather you just imbibe like the beauty of the structure because this isn't like an essay in theology. This is a poem, and it's supposed to speak to the sense of beauty, not just precise dictionary definition. So let's do our best here. Notice how the multifaceted Word of God does a multifaceted work in all who read it. The law of the Lord, the Torah, or the instruction of Yahweh, keep that in mind. I'm going to use that word to keep things clear. The, the law of Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God, is perfect. It is complete. And what does it do? It revives the soul. It gives life. When, when somebody's interacting with God's instruction, it's life-giving for them. It makes, it makes sense. It invigorates them. Here's the next one. The testimony of the Lord. So, when God doesn't just instruct us in what to do, but He's testifying to who He is. Like um, somebody, you know, has their transcripts. Like the transcript of God. Like when He tells you all the stuff He's done. What does that do? The testimony of Yahweh? It's sure. You, you could count on it. Like it really happened. And what does that do? It makes wise the simple. Simple is such a polite word. And at various points in our house, we didn't allow the, uh, the children to say the word stupid. I don't know why. <laughs> um, but this is, this is the word that we would think of as stupid. It makes wise the stupid. You know, like, we know those kind of people. <laughs> what do they need? Well, they need, they need to know what God's done. That, that'll change the way they act. That'll change the way they interact. When you, just by, by hearing the story of who God is and how He works and how He operates, it makes wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord, verse 8, are right. Precepts, something similar to instruction, uh, laws maybe, something a little more legal. So the thou shalts and the thou shalt nots, Right? of Yahweh are right. And listen to this. This, will, this, will, this seems crazy to us. The thou shalt and the thou shalt nots are right. Well, we get that part. Rejoicing the heart? They bring joy? They do bring joy. They're a recipe for joy. I'm telling you, you live in dissonance with the declared word of God, and it will mess you up. I don't know a serial adulterer who feels really good about themselves. Or you just think, and I say this very compassionately, those who are suffering from what psychologists today called gender dysphoria, but those who are attempting to rebel against the way that God has made them, the suicide rates are through the roof. Friends, I, just simple. I'm not trying to be a moralist here. I'm just saying God's ways are good. And like when he tells you to do something, like it's, it's good for the heart. I know what it's like as a teenager to think that, for example, God's laws regarding sexual sin were a little too stringent. And so I wanted to go try to do my own thing. You feel so guilty all the time. You hate what you're doing to yourself. You hate what you're doing to other people. 
You want to talk about a recipe for a terrible life, just go try to live it up the way the world wants you to, apart from the way that God's prescribed. God's laws, his thou shalts and thou shalt nots, they're good. They rejoice the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure. It just means it's radiant, it's bright, enlightening the eyes. The, the Hebrews uh, guys got a metaphor to explain here. They had something about the eyes. They would, they would look at people, and just like you could probably look at me and see bags under my eyes, they're like, hey, what's this problem? Well, it's because I flew in at midnight last night, you know? You can tell. You can look at somebody's eyes and tell if something's off. The Hebrews would say that somebody looks dark around the eyes. It meant that they were sick. If their eyes were light, it meant that they were doing well. Uh, we use this metaphor. I don't know that it totally translates, but maybe you can catch it. Bright-eyed and bushy-tailed. <laughs> I don't know about the bushy tail part, but when somebody's bright-eyed, you're like, oh yeah, they're doing great. He's saying that like, you could tell that when somebody is obeying the commandment of Yahweh, because it's so bright, it's so radiant, it makes them bright and radiant, healthy. Verse 9 is interesting. It calls um, the Bible the fear of the Lord. It's clean, enduring forever. We know this means this utter reverence for God. And here he's speaking in terms of what the Word accomplishes. It accomplishes fear in our heart, like we respect and reverence this God, and it's clean, and it lasts forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. You just get to the end of this thing, and you're like, wow, I really like Torah. I really like God's Word. This is, this is awesome. I mean, the sun is one thing, but the Scriptures… They do something else. You can look up and learn something about God, but you also need to look down at His Word, and it, it does something amazing too. It does something to you, not just around you. And, and, and what happens here is, is, is so beautiful, because look at verse 11, I mean verse 10, he says, more to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Um, not just truth, not just right, but beauty, goodness, emotion. If I were to tell you, man, somebody's offered to give every church member a million dollars as they step out, the, you know, you'd be happy. Gold. People love the idea of the financial freedom that comes from expensive things. He says, it's better than that. The word is better than gold. He just, he's not just saying it's true, it's right. He's saying this is awesome, this is fun. Million dollar check, spend it. And it's sweeter than honey. It's sweeter than the drippings of a honeycomb. It tastes good. When, when you meditate on it and when you apply it, like, it actually like, can produce a dopamine response in the brain, just like a good dessert would. He loves this. Now, he's doing so much that he's just like, it's more valuable than gold. It's better than honey. I mean, this is the Word of God. It, we read it, but I want you to notice something. As we read it, it does something that the Son cannot do. Hear me well, please. It reads us. When we read it, it reads us. This part's amazing. Notice how he says in verse 12, like he, begin, he gets, or verse 11, he's, he notices that the word can not only be sweet and valuable, but he says, moreover, by them is your servant warned, and keeping them there is great reward. When we're reading this thing, we become aware of certain things that are like no-nos, and we shouldn't go down that direction, and we become aware of other things that are like, yes, at all costs, I want to do this or I want to do that. So, as, as David's reflecting on this, all of a sudden, he gets introspective. He's been meditating on the Word and the valuable impact that it has on him and how it leads him in the right way and the good way, and it prohibits him from the wrong way. And this is what he says now, and this seems confusing at first glance. He starts talking about himself. He says, who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. 
Notice what he's saying. Like he's read, as he's thinking about the Bible, all of a sudden he's like, I don't want to accidentally sin against you, O God. Not in any way, shape, or form. As he's reading it, it's reading him, and he's saying, I don't want to accidentally sin. I don't want to intentionally sin. Your word can do this. Your word can keep this from me. Lord, I am depending on you. Like he's reading it and it's changing him. It's developing a fear of God within him. And in fact, it's creating a a positive desire to obey. Verse 14, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Friends, let's admit something very quickly. As cool and amazing as the scriptures are, when they read us, they do two things. They produce burden I'm, I'm being honest. They produce a burden so that they can produce a blessing. Do any of you, have you ever read the Word of God and you're thinking, I feel terrible about myself. I feel like a spiritual loser. Hey, that's good. In part. It's doing its thing. That's exactly what it's supposed to do. Do you remember um, in uh, Pilgrim's Progress? Pilgrim set out for his journey. He's got this massive burden on his back. Depending on which children's version of the book that you used, the uh, burden could be more or less ridiculous. They seem to grow. When I was a kid, he just had a simple, like, heavy backpack on. The last children's book that I read to my kids, he had like a massive tent on his back. I'm like, all right, guys, this is getting a little exaggerated. But he's got this massive burden on his back, and he runs into this guy named um, Mr. Worldly Wise Man. And uh, Worldly Wise Man says to him, hey, where'd you get that burden? Why, Why do you have all that weight on your back? And Christian answers, from reading this book in my hand. Let's admit, the book produces a burden. It points out sin. It shows us where we fall short of God's glory. But that's what it's supposed to do. You know what it's like to go to a doctor. You pay good money for that. You go to the doctor, and he tells you all this terrible stuff. Your cholesterol is high. You weigh too much. Whatever. And you're like, I paid for this. I paid for this guy to tell me that. Because you want the burden so you can have the blessing. You want the burden of the diagnosis so that you can have the blessing of cure. The Bible, thankfully, friends, explains what in the world's so wrong with us. Like, we finally get it. We can finally put our finger on it. We know what it is. That's what the Scriptures do so well. They point out the burden, but they also, listen to this, they provide a blessing. Because David says it's sweeter than honey, it's, it's better than gold. David isn't just all down on himself. Listen to what he also is saying. I'm going to read the same verses again, but this time, instead of emphasizing the burden, let me emphasize the blessing. I want you to note David's security in Yahweh Gleaned from just reading the Scriptures. Are you ready for this? He says this. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. He sees himself in this special relationship with God. that He's a a servant of Almighty God. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. He thinks that God can make him blameless and innocent. He has confidence in this, that God can do that. God can provide the righteousness that he doesn't have. And then he says this, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Yahweh, and then listen to this, my rock and my redeemer. He sees Yahweh as a rock, as a, as a source of protection, like a cave on a hot day. He sees him as his redeemer, his rescuer. He doesn't say, O God, my judge and executioner. 
From the Scriptures, David knows that he's got a relationship with God that is actually a source of safety and protection for him, even though he sins. And do you see the two now? You read the Scriptures and they weigh you down with burden, but then you continue to read the Scriptures and they relieve you in blessing as they point to the only remedy that God Himself must provide. And in David's Old Testament context, he did not know fully what that would look like. He only had signs of the relief to come through the sacrifices that would be offered. But we today know from reading the Scriptures that the solution for the burden has come as Christ has lived on our behalf, died the death we deserve to die, fully absorbing God's wrath in Himself, risen again from the dead, so that all who believe in Him could have eternal life. There's a solution. There's blessing. How do we find that out? You could search the stars. You could study the sun. But you will never know about the salvation provided in Jesus apart from reading His sacred Word. You need both books. The book of the skies and the book of the scriptures. That's, it provides burden, yeah, but it also provides blessing. There's hope for relationship with God. My prayer for you, brothers and sisters, is that all of us through a psalm like this would be enticed to know God. One one author put it this way. I like this. I think it will help you. A little knowledge of God is worth more than a great deal of knowledge about Him. I'm going to repeat that. It sounds similar, but listen carefully. A little knowledge of God is worth more than a great deal of knowledge about Him. The reason why some of you struggle so much with being uh, bored with studies of God and the Scriptures, it's because you're only learning about Him, not of Him. You understand that that God has made Himself known to you. In any relationship, the person who is the superior has to disclose themselves to you. You don't get to find out more about them. I have a hard time thinking of the King of England, So I'm going to pretend it was a year ago, and I'm going to think of the Queen of England. Could you imagine having a private audience with the Queen of England? Somebody of that type of power and status and rank will not enter into any relationship with you without their initiative. It's it's up to them. And she could disclose as little or as much of herself to you as she wants. It could be formal and on the surface, Or she could disclose to you her designs and plans and dreams. And if that latter case were to happen, now you're brought into her confidence. You're brought into her relational sphere. Now something amazing has happened. As you get to know someone who you know is better than you, superior to you. And I know that's hard to believe in the United States, but guess what? There are people who are better than us. When you meet someone that's your better and they bring you into a relationship, it does a couple things. It, it relieves you, it encourages you, like, wow, I get to know this person. And it instructs you, it sharpens you, it makes you different. I want to be like them. That's what God has done. The superior has made himself known, generally in the skies, in the creation. Like, he's saying, hey, this is who I am. I am powerful, I am beautiful, I am amazing, And you're like, whoa, this is stunning. And then as you come to the Scriptures, you begin to realize, and I can have relationship with Him. He's made Himself known. He is holy, and He hates sin, and yet He's provided a remedy for that sin. And you want to be more like Him because you see how great He is, and you see how not great you are, but you realize that He's provided a solution in Christ, and giving you the Spirit who enables you to obey. The knowledge of God, brothers and sisters, isn't just true. It isn't just right. It is beautiful. It is a matter of the heart. And so I ask you these three questions as a way to reflect on this stunning poem of God's revelation. One, are you not stunned by Him and His creation? 
I know, we get busy. Stuff just happens. You move on. The nature documentary ends. <laughs> but I think what the text is inviting us to do is to once more pause and look for the signature. Somebody who shall remain unnamed, kindly gifted my family with three paintings. And they're all of sunsets. And uh, I'm, not that, I'm not that bougie. <laughs> like, I don't know that much of what I'm looking at, but I know that those things are beautiful. And what's fascinating to me is that uh, there is a signature on there. I just can't read it. <laughs> you know, I don't know who it is. And I'm thinking, whoever it is, they must be amazing. Look, friends, God has put his signature in such an obvious spot. He's made it so explicitly clear that none of us did this. He did it. And he invites us to to regularly take that in and be stunned by it. Are you being stunned by his creation? That is a form of worship. It's not the only one. Don't say, oh, I'm going to go do church at the beach. You know, that's not what he's saying. But when you're at the beach, you can, quote, unquote, do church. You can worship. Second question, have you been searched by his scriptures? Have you been searched by his scriptures? Some of you have come in today, and I'm glad that you're here. And, um, and maybe you don't know what it is to actually be in relationship with God. You've heard things about him, but you don't know him personally. Let me tell you where that begins. It begins by exposing yourself to his written word as it's preached in places like this. But also, may I invite you to read it one-on-one with someone else? If you've never read the Bible before, you don't know that you're in a relationship with God, there's no better way to go about it than just reading the Word of God. It does something to you. Give it a try. And you're like, I'm down. I'll give it a try. I'd love to read with somebody. I'd love to connect you. But the Word of God will do a stunning work in your heart. Have you been searched by His Scriptures I say to those of you who are already in Christ, continue to take this in on your own. I don't want this to become a guilt sermon like, did you read your Bible seven out of seven days last week? But I'm telling you, it's the opportunity of your life, not the obligation. It does something to you. And can I encourage you with this? It's doing something to you whether you feel it in the moment or not. I would challenge you to read the Word of God by faith and not by feeling. It's this gradually, gradually, suddenly kind of thing. Like you just keep reading and reading and reading and then all of a sudden you just find yourself different than you were a year ago. It's doing something. Unleash it in your own life, in your marriage, with your children around the dinner table. The Word of God is doing something amazing. And then last question, if you do read the Bible or you have read the Bible, have you found the main point? Speaking of Spurgeon, he said, just as all roads lead to London, all scriptures lead to Jesus. He's their point. He's their terminus. This thing's about him. And that's, <laughs> thankfully, good for us because it, it wants us, I mean, it produces within us a desire to live righteously, but it also relieves us that his righteousness has already been given to us. And so we walk away from a sermon like this today, a gathering like this, and we're good. Because we know that though we've fallen short, Christ has made up the difference and all is well. In fact, he's even given us a tangible reminder of that through bread and juice that just say, you're welcome around my table. This body was broken for you. This blood shed for you. All is well for those who are trusting in me.